0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Back to Britpop, it's me Chris. On this episode I'm delighted to be joined by Tom Hingley of Inspiral Carpets. We talk a lot about Tom's book Carpet Burns which came out in 2014 which uh, which are his memoirs of his time in the carpets and From joining the band, to their touring, uh, getting signed to Mute Records, and then subsequently leaving. And everything in between. It's a fantastic book. We talk a bit about um, what that was like to write, and also his successful solo career that he's had ever since. I'll be back after the interview to talk about all the ways you can support the podcast. But in the meantime, here's Tom. Okay, welcome to the podcast, Tom Hingley. How, How are you?
1: I'm fine. I'm I'm somewhat browned. I mean, I brown quite easily in the sun and uh, we've had a lovely weekend with it being a long bank holiday weekend. Sort of Friday, we just had some drinks at home, me and missus. And um, then on Saturday, I went to go and see my friend Pete. He plays drums for Paul Heat. and then we had some beers in his back garden. And then, um, what did we do on Sunday? Just drank too much, really. Yeah. Uh, had some drinks in the back garden with our neighbours. And then today we went up to Chester uh, to visit some of my wife's friends who she's had since she was you know she's she's got this group of friends who she went to school with and somebody she's known even longer and so we went up to Chester and sat in Grosvenor Park there having a picnic and sort of being normal. It's the most normal thing we've done actually in
0: in a long time. Uh, I mean you've you've been quite busy haven't you um you, you know you've still been gigging a lot and obviously with the lockdowns easing and things you you've you've got back into the swing of things. But how is how important has it been for you and just you know your music and everything else just to get back to some sort of normality.
1: Well, I've only done three gigs since they lifted some of the restrictions at the beginning of March. Um, but it's, it's it, I mean, I didn't realize how much I'd missed it, really, I suppose, which is, I mean, I always make these comments, which in retrospect are bleeding obvious, anyone else would have realized months ago. But I didn't realize how much I'd missed it, and uh, I'm enjoying it. But I don't know whether, I mean, I've got some workbooks, I've got quite a bit of workbook for the rest of the year. Whether it all happens or not is another matter, perhaps. Uh, yeah. But, um, I think maybe the, obviously the pandemic's been awful and the lockdown's been awful, but I think in some ways it maybe has afforded me the ability to have a long, hard look at myself and my life and think, do I really wanna go on working at that pace? And yeah, you know, were my priorities right? Which I don't think they always were. So I think it's uh, kind of a, a reset really.
0: Have you been able to sort of you know put, put some of that, those thoughts and into sort of songwriting and, 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 and that sort of different kind of subject matter that you would normally explore?
1: Well, I mean, I've been providing childcare. Really, I've got a, I've got a, a four year old and an eight year old, and I mean, for about nine months, I've been sort of schooling them at home. Yeah, uh, and so that's taken up some energy. My wife works very hard. She works at Musicians Union. She's been working harder than ever, and she's I mean, she she, she did work from home before the lockdown, but God knows how she's kept going because she's been so help look after all of us. Uh, yeah. also, I do some of that, look after the kids, and having to do like a really quite a demanding job in the confines of our house with sometimes all hell breaking loose. Um so uh yeah I mean I'm writing an album. Uh it's a bit odd, but um I am writing an album. And I've also been um writing a diary, which I've kept up pretty much almost every day for the last 14 months. It's increasingly long actually I'm kind of the, the entries
0: are getting longer and longer each day which is slightly odd are you looking to publish the the diary again like in similar to no. <laughs> not
1: necessarily i mean there might be some bits in the diary and i'm doing a new book at the moment which is at the publishers at the moment which is all about post and spiral sort of career but um the thing about the diary is i think a diary is a good idea i mean i i mean i don't want to go on about it but i think you know one in three people have mental problems i think i certainly have mental problems and certainly the lockdown has exacerbated or created some of those so mm-hmm. i think the thing about keeping a diary <laughs> Is it allows you to remember beautiful ephemeral things that you might forget, and it also allows you to cauterise or erase things that you don't want to remember if you write them down in an analog. So, yeah. so it's not necessarily for. You know, I don't think people really want to know that you know I ate a toasted cheese sandwich on the twelfth of May or something. <laughs> Maybe that would be the height of erotic fascination for some people. I don't know, but that might say might say more about them and their fetish for dairy products than it does about me.
0: Well, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about the book Carpet Burns. And I know it's, it's been released for a few years now, but it's it's certainly new to me. And I, and I guess when you were writing, well, when you were starting to write memoirs or diary entries and things, you probably at the time had no idea that you form the basis of the novel or the book, but um, it's kind of like, for me, it's, it is like a, a manual in terms of just how to be in a band, what happens on the road, what can what you can expect, et cetera, et cetera. I say it's eye-opening in some cases, but for you, cathartic to write or just really f- factual?
1: It was cathartic to get it finished and to get it published. I mean, up to that point, it was probably quite stress-inducing. It was cathartic once it was done. I mean, like, if you want to use a kind of... A comparison with a, with a record release when we were doing records with spiral carpets. I used to regularly have a bath on a Monday morning at nine o'clock when all the you know physical shops opened, when things used to be primarily sold through physical shops, you know, before the internet yeah. and downloads. And you think, well, the die's cast now, it's out there now, it'll either be a hit or it won't. And so it's the same thing with the book, you know. It wasn't cathartic until I actually knew that it was bound and was going to be in shops. At that point, it became cathartic. But my dad used to write books. He was an academic I used to translate Chekhov and translated all, all the works of Chekhov. The Oxford University Press and my brother Richard is a you know he's a professor of archaeology at Durham University and he writes bu- books about Hadrian's Wall and Boudicca and the Roman occupation of Britain and so you know he writes books. So there is book writing in the family, but I suppose I wanted to write a book that would sell more copies than any book that my dad had ever written and any book that my brother had ever written out of that kind of natural, pathetic filial kind of envy, I suppose, or competition. Yeah.
0: And do you think that would have been something you would have ultimately gone into if you hadn't have found like the music or wanted to be a frontman or a a musician? Because
1: of, I mean, this is probably a bizarre way of turning things on its head, but because of white privilege and because I'm quite middle class, I had a really good education. And my parents were, you know, both, well, my dad was a writer and my mum brought up seven kids, but Mm -hmm. she was educated. Because of sort of white privilege and all that lot, I probably could have done, there's probably a lot of things I could have done. If wanted to, I probably could have been a politician. You know, probably could have been an actor. Definitely could have been a writer. Could have been a poet. But whether that's because I'm particularly gifted or just because of white privilege, you yeah. <laughs> decide. But obviously, saying it that way is a slightly acerbic <laughs> way of putting it. Well, I'm I know but hear, it, it I'm is. Hear it... Many people saying that are you <laughs> because I'm a white male middle yeah, but... class and educated. There's probably a lot of things
0: that I could have done. I mean, I feel it in in my in my mid forties. Is that is that guilt of having uh, a level of privilege that that you know you, you you kind of feel a bit I don't know, especially when you're raising children as well. Like I've got two young kids, but you feel that immensely privileged and feel a slight tinge of guilt about that, and, and that's an odd situation to be in. Or, well, or not. you should
1: feel guilt. And you should, I mean, I don't mean you. I'm talking about you know. I'm talking about. I'm talking about a person, I'm not talking about you or me, but I mean we ought to be trying to embrace diversity and yeah. embrace, embracing equality of all kinds, you know, and all kinds of shapes and forms. And the thing is that there's a great big wave breaking, which is, is a great big wave of feminism breaking, which I think a lot of men are completely <laughs> unaware of. <it>. They're <laughs> gonna become aware of it sooner or later, you know. And the the lockdown and COVID, it's kind of accelerated history. I mean, in retail changes that might have taken five or six or ten years have happened in 13 months and I think in society with the way that men and women interact with one another relate to one another get married stay married don't stay married I think all of those things are subject to an enormous amount of change which a lot of people don't don't even have an inkling is going on
0: and so in terms of like musical heroes if we could go back a little bit who would you say would you would you have classed as a, a front man or a a musical hero?
1: Oh, well, it would be people like Ian Jury. I mean, Ian Jury, I mean, before, I mean, like a lot of um, what John Lydon, you know, Johnny Rotten took off the peg really was from Ian Jury. I mean, Ian Jury was sort of in Kilburn and Highroads, who's obviously had polio when he was a kid. Um, he kind of had this kind of, I mean, it, people don't really think it's about injury, but he had this kind of androgynous beauty. He was sort of ugly, beautiful in the same way, I suppose, that Mick Jagger was, but he had some really deal with quite difficult physical problems that have been caused from having polio and then you know being stuck in a bed for years rather than you know obviously when muscles atrophy the first thing to do is to get someone out exercising all the time which they didn't do in the 60s they just stuck you in a bed for two years didn't they
0: online mm-hmm.
1: the wrong or something so i think Ian, J- Ian Jury definitely is a big musical hero not sure he was always a very nice bloke Um, You know, but I mean, musically a hero and so he injuries up there. Jimi Hendrix, I think, because Jimi Hendrix sort of um, took blues and then made it electric and had to come to a little island just off Europe to find fame, as did Bob Marley. You know, that's another hero. So, you know, I like Elvis as well. I think Elvis was great. I mean, the thing about Elvis that people don't realise now is that, you know, he wasn't country and he wasn't blues. He wasn't jazz, he kind of mixed it all up. And he also kind of looked like a woman, didn't he? Which people sort of don't really remember now. I mean, I think you know, before Bowie and his kind of androgynous, there was Elvis, wasn't he? You know, yeah. He yeah. didn't look like a regular pope, did he? You know, <laughs> so there's an element in music where it should be a little bit, it should split borders, it should split lines a little bit. And I think mm-hmm. I mean I think you know, I mean, I know public enemy said Elvis was a hero to most, but me to me he was a racist, you know, whatever. But I mean there wouldn't have been a lot of things without Elvis. It's just a shame that he became shoddy so quickly. It's just a shame that he was turned into the all round entertainer so quickly, but you know, when he was actually starting out, he really was breaking kind of race lines. And mm. he was autogenous. so, you know, he, he broke down a lot of he, when he first started off, he was breaking down a lot of stuff, you know? So but unfortunately that became very commodified very quickly.
0: So in terms of, like, your lyrical style, what would you describe it as in, and and what do you draw on in terms of subject?
1: Lyrical style, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I mean, I think I'm probably quite influenced by people like Elvis Costello, but, uh, you know, kind of acerbic, quite acidic lyrics, usually quite negative, quite often about emotional observations about oneself and other people. But I'd also say, you know, Elvis Costello is a, quite a cool person to pull out of the fire because he came up in sort of punk years and he was on stiff and post-punk years and new wave years but i also think steely dan because i think steely dan's lyrics are really good <laughs> They're yeah incredibly yeah cynical you know there's that song gold earring you know which is about a junkie who steals stuff off his girl off his girlfriend he steals yeah. gold earrings off his girlfriend and there's a line which is like i think it's that song it's a line that's a turn up the eagles the neighbors are listening so like not only is that kind of saying that you don't listen to the Eagles to turn it up so your neighbours couldn't hear what they're saying but it's also kind of name-checking the other band that they were competing with (laughs) and possibly not very positive lights you know and the actual song The Real Scam it's all about you know how New York used to be owned by Dutch people and how the Dutch people came there and and how, you know, the Afri- Africa, African-American people came there and how they all got ripped off. It's, it's a brilliant song. So I think "Silly Down are probably more of a feeder to kind of the punk lyrics, maybe, yeah. than people realise, I think. Maybe.
0: Well, I was thinking, when I listen to your music, I, I do think that the, the delivery style is very well pronounced. It's there, There's a lot of um, focus on, in terms of just being able to, make sure that the the listener is hearing the lyric and that's quite i suppose because of the scene at the time and and when you know you were starting out with us with the carpets and things um it wasn't necessarily the case for all the bands it was sort of trying to emulate you know the the american sound or you know you were a northern band but you're not you're not from the north but there is definitely a difference i think in terms of you know you definitely wanted people to hear what you were trying to say
1: I think it's, well, thank you. I mean, I think it's difficult. I didn't write a lot of the lyrics. I mean, Clint wrote a lot of the songs that ended up being quite big hits, you know, like The Fields and Saturn V and Two Worlds Collide. And Graham wrote quite a lot of the songs that are, it's quite hard to know what they're about. Like he wrote Commercial Rain, you know, and he wrote, um, you know, and he wrote She Comes in the Fall and, you know, and I mean, I wrote stuff like "Dragging Me Down and Weakness and Martin wrote stuff like I Want You and, you um, was so good for me after I left the band, you know, the album they did it after me. So, I mean, I wasn't necessarily singing lyrics that I'd written. So I suppose I owed it to them to make it so yeah. good. could hear what I was singing, I suppose.
0: Well, that was your background, I guess, in just terms of, you know, uh, into books and literature and everything else that you just wanted to be, you know, well read, but also well, you know, um, make it... A- ensuring that people could hear what, what the message. So when you listen to music, I mean, like me and Kelly,
1: we've been sat around doing, usually Kelly is a DJ. We've got a little son-off speaker and she's usually the DJ. And like last night she had like one one of John Grant's albums on and she's a great lover of music and she's a real fangirl. I mean, she, she, you know, when, when Calexico and Iron and & Wine played the tour in 2019, she went to see them four times and they put her on the guest list for a gig. I think it was down in Eastbourne or something. She drove all 280 miles there, watched them, and then drove 280 miles back you know so she's a real fangirl she's really into music but i've I've got to be honest listening to this um john grant album it's fantastic Mm. but the lyrics are absolutely caustic and i mean obviously once we've heard it 40 times they probably don't touch the sides but i would find it quite mood altering that from the lyrical content of it whereas maybe i wouldn't do if it was me who'd composed them the fantastic lyrics but quite brutal really and we were listening to the latest album by Future Islands. Same thing, it's a breakup album, I think, the Future Islands album. And it is pretty raw, really, the album, you know. And I can't listen to things without listening to the lyrics, you know. And I think I probably am a bit of a depressive, you know. And, um, you know, I go up and I go down, I listen to Curtains by Tinder Six the other night, which I shouldn't have done, really, because it's like the most dour album. I don't know if you know it, but it's just the most dour album going. Yeah. And very, very melancholic. Uh, but, geez, it's. You know, maybe I shouldn't really listen to that for another year or so. So, I think lyrics I tend to, I've always listened to them, I've always hypothesized about them, I've always come up with my views about what they're about, but I may be completely wrong. Yeah, they're They're certainly an important component for me, I guess.
0: In terms of like the carpets, going back to that, you know, the the songwriters and and the amount of songwriters you had in that band, was it difficult for you in a way to just try and get your voice heard above? them in terms of that output yes
1: i think the probably answer to that is yes i don't think i need to exemplify it beyond that i mean what i would say though is in the same way that i mean i'm not comparing myself to frank sinatra but you know frank sinatra used to you know he used to play um something you know by george harrison and he obviously completely changed Way that he read the song because he was a songwriter himself and he'd say and now a song by Lennon and McCartney and he knew it was written by George Harrison but he always introduces it mm-hmm. as being by Lennon and McCartney because the point he's trying to make was that he'd rewritten the song so I think if you're a great singer an interpretator or a songwriter you can take a piece of material that is really good and make it very very special so for example with This Is How It Feels Clint wrote the song well he didn't he wrote a song called "Called So This Is How It Feels and I say, Clint There's a song in the South Pacific called So This Is How It Feels. You have to call it This Is How It Feels. Apart from anything, I'll never get paid the publishing if you call it (laughs) It's something that's like, you know, by, you know, Roger Hammerstein, whoever wrote that probably wasn't him. But, you know, so, you know, so you can take a really good song and make it really even better if you're a songwriter and interpreter. And the thing about This Is How It Feels is I doubt that that song, I mean, like, people who auditioned to join the spiral carpets after Steve left, obviously, he joined later. he rejoined back again in 2011 but the, the people who auditioned to sing in that band when Stee left in 1988 were people like um the guy who ended up being in the high sorry his name I can't remember at the moment and Noel Gallagher there's no way either of them would have sung this is how it feels because it would have said oh, you know yeah with it in 1989 I'm not saying now they would have said oh that sounds a bit gay I'm not singing that so I think you have to have that ability to be able to read things and have a critical understanding of what the voice might be trying to say in order to sing it
0: there is an element of that sort of uh, kitchen sink drama uh content about the lyrics to that song and just i know lots of your songs where it's just normal life and i think that's kind of what the attraction with the carpets was as well as this you were normal guys singing about normal stuff
1: that's probably the most difficult thing to do in the world because like the buzz cops did that but it's much harder to write a three-minute pop song than it is to write The Resurrection, and it was Stone Roses. Three-minute pop songs, or two-minute pop songs, The Ramones, The Buzzcocks, The Undertones, Stiff Little Fingers, that's probably harder than doing Tales of Topographic Oceans, isn't it, really? Writing three-minute pop songs is actually quite difficult. And I don't mean you, Chris, but, you know, we have a bit of a snobby attitude towards pop music. Well, do you know what? I love pop music. Mm. I'm, I'm not going to apologise for liking pop music. I love The Ramones. I love The Buzzcocks uh you know i love the undertones i love motown but motown was pop music there's nothing wrong with pop music i quite like you know i can't get you out of my head i think that's a good song i like crazy in love i like those songs and some people you know they talk about things being guilty pleasures but things shouldn't be guilty pleasures you should just like them if you like them
0: yeah Yeah, i think there is an element of actually becoming a little bit more um chilled and soft as you get older and i had a a hideous uh like um snobbiness to to music for all my all through my late teens and early well, 20s we all we <laughs> did,
1: you know i'm not i mean i decried led zeppelin for years because my older brothers were into them and then of course first tour of america i bought all their albums on cd i mean they weren't very well they were just transferred from vinyl they weren't very well mastered uh actually led zeppelin was never very well mastered because uh I think, you know, Jimmy Page mastered all of it, and I don't think he was very good at it, to be honest, which uh, it's a bit of a controversial thing to say. Great guitarist. I mean, great guitar sounds. If you listen to the guitar sounds, you think, who ever would have come up with that guitar sound? You know, it's yeah. wonderful, but it's also crap. So, <laughs> I mean, in my view, you know. But then I have very strong views about rock music, you know, like Layla, you know, like Eric Clapton. Apart from the fact that it's a riff that Greg Orman came up with, it's a verse with no chorus. There is no chorus in that song. It's awful. Layla is awful. That's a terrible song. <laughs> if I'd been in a band when Layla had come up, I would have said, yeah, where's the chorus? I mean, there's yeah. a whole long intro that no one ever plays, Then there's a Greg Orman riff, and it goes nowhere. It goes absolutely nowhere. It's a terrible song.
0: the whole kind of formula of the pop song has been, you know, there, it is like bottling lightning, isn't it, when, when you get that that right and and is it something you strive for just to to make something neat and tidy uh accessible
1: i haven't done pop music i mean i've done a few i mean i've done a few electric records that were quite caustic recently and i've done quite a few acoustic records which are just me singing and playing guitar and i'm just about to record one hopefully the next couple of months which is sort of just me singing and playing guitar and i'm actually playing a guitar without a plectrum so it's like a slightly different feel Mm. Um, but i mean pop music i mean i know that when we recorded move for example I put a little ooh-ooh bit at the end of it, which I think was a little bit Smiths-ish maybe. And uh, I, I remember one member of the band didn't like me doing it at the time, but I thought, you know, I used to be into bands like Dr. Feelgood, where, um, you know, like you listen to a song like Down Down to the Doctors, you know, they put a little guitar riff on the end on the run-out groove to make you want to put the record back on again, which is probably a lot sort of Motown kind of thing. So I knew to put a little point of interest at the end of the song that would want to make people put the record back on again, or, you know, something song like I Want You. Uh, where I sang um, a bit of the verse over the chorus at the end. So, yeah, there's also a kind of a basic thing. I don't, I mean, maybe I'm not explaining it musically very well, but there's a basically a thing about kind of soul music or blues music. You kind of sing a harmony of the, say, you've got a song with two notes in it, you know, like uh, Heroes by Bowie, you know, so at the end he's singing. Up from one note down to the other note over these two chords, because Heroes is just two chords, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, As is a lot of stuff by uh, Mike Scott, you know, like um, Waterboys, you know, like, um, um, you know, a lot of his big songs are just two notes, really. And uh, also um, Talk Talk, a lot of their songs are kind of two chords, really. Um, And what you do is, say that you're singing up to one note and down to the other note, at the end of the song, you switch it around you start singing the harmony the other way around. So, for example, in Wild is the Wind, you know, Bowie goes on about, you know, with your breath, my... Wild is the wind, wild is the... Wild is the wind. So that bit where he goes down, it's a reversal of the way that the harmony, all the way through the song. That's a basic soul blues meme
0: what would you say is that you know i know you have you've, you've been writing and re- recording and releasing stuff since the, the carpets obviously but what would you say would be out of everything the album or, or even the song that you're most proud of
1: well, there was one I did an album called Keep Britain Untidy, which I recorded in 2000 and came out in two thousand and one. A lot of people consider that to be the best acoustic thing I've done, which obviously in one way is a good thing, in other ways a bit of a millstone around one's neck. Uh, there's a good track that I did um, on an album in 2015 called Leaving It All Behind. And that's kind of a song. Um a friend of ours had a they had a babe a daughter and she only she only lived for about 29 days and she passed away. And um, a terrible tragedy, you know. And uh, me and my wife Kelly, we went to the funeral and we found out that morning that we were having a baby. And we, we hadn't had a baby up to that point. So we just couldn't tell anyone. Mm. That we were Not that it was very early on in the pregnancy anyway, but we really couldn't tell anyone that we were having a baby because it wasn't relevant. But it also, so that song is kind of about that tension between this terrible passing of a little girl. Who should be here and isn't here, and also attention of not almost having to not think about we couldn't at that moment we couldn't be excited about the situation because it wasn't appropriate to be excited about that situation, which is that's a pretty weird. I mean, I think I overthink things, but I mean a lot of people might, you know, they might it would have been all right to tell people it wouldn't have been the thing to do. That song is kind of about this this guy's daughter dying, which I don't think. They've had a song written about them. So I kind of felt it was my job, although you wouldn't know that.
0: And in terms of live, playing live, you, know, you still, you know, you do the acoustic shows, but even beforehand with the with the with the full band and stuff, you know, you still delivered great energy on stage. Is this really important for you to sort of be the front man still?
1: Don't know about that. I mean, I think the last year has been a big reset. I mean, I, I do work and I'm working now. But, I, I mean, I'm 56 this year. I don't intend to, I mean, I might work until I'm 67 or so. I'm not going to work after that. I don't think, I think, just fancy doing something else, you know. Mm. I mean, the thing is, you know, I'm not trying to sound like Alan Partridge, but Kelly is 14 years younger than me. So she's going to be working for a few more years after I've finished. And, you know, I, I just think it's time for a change of emphasis, I think. I mean, you know, I mean, the other thing is, I probably play too much, you know. And over the years, a lot of people said, you need to play less, Tom, you know. And it is true that if actually just completely stopped playing, you know, maybe four people a year would ask me to play and I could probably ask for quite a lot of money to do it. So there is is an element of big hamster on a wheel by playing too much and not valuing each bit of work that you do. So we'll have to see what shape the world is in. I mean, because we're not, you know, this idea of going back to normal. We're not going to be going back to normal. And I think there are big changes in society coming, which may influence whether... I'll work so much, you know, like there's never going to be full employment again. So why do we actually judge people by whether they work or not? That doesn't Mm -hmm. make any sense of any kind at all. Much more important to kind of give everyone a basic income, but then say, right, well, you know, maybe you have to spend 20 hours a week going and talking to your elderly neighbour next door and making sure they're okay. So there ought to be, you know, so we ought to fund people so that they can survive, but we also have, have some expectation that they provide some social good for that funding, because you know, so what I'm saying, I mean, this isn't really the question you asked, but what I'm saying is there shouldn't be loneliness in Britain, really. You know, mm. that's it's you know, that's what we, we ought to have here, you the know, National Loneliness Service. You know, there shouldn't be people lonely in Britain, it's completely absurd, really. Um, so what I'm saying is we'll have to see what the world looks like in the future because yeah. will it, you know, um, we don't know whether we're out of the woods with this pandemic we don't know whether the stuff is going to open up on the 21st of June or how long that's going to go on for and you know I mean like um you know we were locked down in Manchester for eight months straight you know from July yeah. um, until March and I, I do these family zooms you know every other weekend with my brothers and sisters and a couple of them live in London and I'm in Norwich and all this, and they couldn't understand why I was so angry about how, how long we were locked down in the north because they seem to lock down the north in order to keep London open to be honest, which mm. was a, was a strong, it was a, you know, I mean, like, you know, like I know this is not what you were asking me, Christopher, but, you know, like they should have had a circuit breaker in September of last year. And the fact that I can remember what the terminology for this bullshit was, you know, in October, I, you know, I was having a Zoom conversation with my sister who was shopping on Oxford Street with hundreds of thousands of people on it. So what's the point of locking down the north of Britain if you're not going to lock down the capital city? If you're not going to lock down the capital city, it's completely pointless. And I, I'm not an anti-vaxxer by any means. But um, so so what I'm saying is I, I don't know. I mean, I've got work booked for the future. Uh, we'll have to see, you know. Uh, you know, we'll have to see. You know, I mean, uh, I was trying to get some car insurance and I, and I you know, I, 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 I made my car insurance non-business insurance a couple of months ago to save some money and uh, I rang around. and said we need to make a business insurance again and they said "Oh, well, you're going to need some more mileage and I'm saying well I does anyone actually know because <laughs> yeah, yeah. 21st of June they say no everything's been shut down for another six months you know I mean I was using my car every two weeks to drive eight miles to buy some logs for our log burner I don't need to be paying 125 pound a month car insurance <laughs> No, uh, logs, you know so what i'm saying is um i think probably i will go on working but whether i'll do so much i don't know i yeah. might try and do more not not to decry the stuff i've done previously because i've had a really good career but I have done a lot of work whereas maybe the future is being more selective about the work mm-hmm. i don't
0: know well tom i'll let you get uh, on with the rest of the sunny bank holiday Monday that we have uh, and the what the book is is cracking and as I say there's there's so much in there it's jam-packed and you could read everything you want to know about everything from Noel to just getting signed and, and being dropped and labeled you're
1: going, you going to read the rest of it are you
0: I'm good, definitely going to read the rest of it well it's, it's, it's you can't put it down um it was
1: more fun than was in the book I've got one criticism for the book because the book came out in 2012 and I don't think the rest of the spirals very happy with it which is obviously their gift they're allowed to feel that way about it and I everyone's got a right to their own version of a story, but it was more fun maybe. And I said it was in the book and, you know, they were terrific friends and associates and collaborators. I was very lucky to work with them. So if in any way that doesn't come across in the book, it's worth just, it's worth just spelling that out that they are really Mm. great people and they were great times and really good fun times. So don't forget that when you're reading the book.
0: (laughs) No, but it's it's the way it's written. I think you've, you've, the chapters are nice and short there's loads of anecdotal stuff in there which is makes it just a really really quick read as well easy. i think the
1: editor the editor is very good i mean you know i, I read morris's uh, memoir or whatever and he he wouldn't have an editor which is absurd you know because even william shakespeare had an editor because shakespeare never wrote anything down um in his lifetime and they put the first folio together Ten or fifteen years after he died, and the actors had to recite the lines. So even Shakespeare had an editor. So like, you know, so like, you know, in Morris's book, he gets onto page hundred and he starts talking about how Oscar Wilde, you know, how he lost that trial and got, you know, he got sent down to two years hard labour, you know, Reading jail, you know. So you start thinking, why is he talking about that? And about another <laughs> page in, you realise he's comparing Oscar Wilde's trial where he got broken and ultimately died pretty soon after he was released to his court cool case, you know, with my Joyce. Which is absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's like comparing stubbing his toe to Jesus Christ being crucified. You know, that, um, it's ridiculous. So he needed an editor. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I think it was judiciously edited. I mean, the other thing is I wrote about um, I wrote about another 80,000 words that were cut out of the book to give it this kind of fiscal dynamic energy. Which comes from the editing so the writing you know the writing is there but it was made much better by the editor as well and i have to give credit to selwyn who edited it really, you know
0: okay well thanks very much chris Really nice speaking to you mate yeah it's been fantastic take care god bless See bye thanks ever so much to tom for joining him on the podcast it was fantastic and really appreciate his time Uh, on a lovely sunny bank holiday that it was book is amazing uh, and literally can't put it down it it goes into so much detail and really is a bit of an eye-opener in terms of what it was like to be on the road with such a big band in the 90s essentially i know you're all asking yourselves how can i support this fantastic podcast well there's loads of ways you can do that um follow me on social media so just search for back to britpop on instagram twitter and facebook also you can write a review that's really helpful if you go on apple podcasts and just give us a star rating and if you've got time a short review will also help a great deal if you want to buy me a virtual coffee there's a link in the show notes to the episodes which takes you to a co-fire page and you can donate three pounds if you want so thanks again to everyone who's been listening to the podcast and supporting me It's been amazing. Hopefully I'll be back next week with another episode if all things go to plan. Until then, cheerio.